0: Absolutely good afternoon everyone. This is not Lighthouse Church as you can imagine. This is my home. It actually is Dining Room Table Christianity because Tyler is filming me over here. I'm sitting next to my table. T is upstairs with his final college paper that he's preparing. Merrill is upstairs with a client and here I am that's right, repeating Sunday's message. Sadly, Sunday, and it was an incredible Sunday, we sang an exquisite new song, and there was faith in the room, and there was excitement, and we had some great stories about launch and leadership residency, and I thought I did a pretty good job at framing Hebrews, and voila, it all imploded. It crumbled on us like those old cinemas. Remember those old movies that just started crunching up? Kind of that's what happened to our audio. So here I am Without, I asked Tyler if he'd sing the three songs again and he just laughed at me. And uh, there's no Sam to welcome everyone. So it's just us and we just got the passage and we just got the content. So welcome. This is the beginning of Hebrews. Hebrews is in a remarkably mysterious book, all 13 chapters written by we don't know who to an audience that we're uncertain about. And yet the central idea in the 13 chapters is Jesus. Jesus is in every chapter but one. And those of you who know the text know that that chapter is chapter 11, and that's the faith chapter. How incredible is that? So what I want to do today is really just frame the series, identify, I think, some of the key conversations for us. And there's no better place to start than Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. And uh, here the author says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times, In various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. What an opening salvo. What what an incredible verse to launch out with. The author is telling us we serve a speaking God. He's intimate. He's personal and he communicates. Isn't that just the most glorious thing? This is not just the mood and feeling of spirituality. This is not the mysticism of, uh, of, of angels and other spirit beings. This is not worshipping statues and altars made of wood and steel and, and stone. This is God, the eternal God who has chosen to be called by that word. The word in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And here the in, the, the the writer introduces us to a speaking God. Now, if you've been a Christian as long as I've been, forty five years, you know what it's kind of easy to get a little skeptical, to get a little disgruntled because well, now I've heard that. You know, when the preacher opens up a text or a friend opens up a scripture over a coffee. Um, It's so easy to have a soft inner voice of, nah, I've heard that. Oh, that's very, very dangerous. I mean, Meryl and I had three kids. We now have six grandkids. And you know, the excitement of every time they speak for the first time has never left us. When NASA, our oldest daughter, spoke for the first time, and we think it was Dada... We 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 were excited. I mean, there was this kind of humorous competition of did he say dada? Did he say ma? Did she say mama? Or um, now with my grandkids, with uh, Scumbie, who's now one and a half, and jabbering away passionately, we don't sit there and say ah heard that ah seen that every time we hear those words begin to be formed and then put together there is this incredible excitement in us wow what are they going to say next we were sitting here uh, feeding the little guy the other day and out of this one and a half year old's mouth was oh my gosh where did that come from we laughed and he realized it was funny and so he said it again and again because there is something exquisite when we open our hearts up to the words and the speech that can shape and form us and what the writer does is introduces us to that great reminder listen in days gone by God spoke to us through the Torah and the prophets these days the author says God speaks to us through Jesus who is the word who is the word and of course, now, since the Holy Spirit, we have the Pentecost, we have the Holy Spirit adding to this great volume of teaching and truth. And please don't ever draw a soft line in the sand due to skepticism and hardness of heart and disappointment. Open your heart, open my heart as God speaks to us from Hebrews that they're new things He wants to reveal to us, mysteries that He wants to open up to us in the most wonderful way. Have you ever had a conversation with someone? And you feel like, they're not listening to me at all. They're kind of looking and then they look over your shoulders. There's someone else to speak to? Um, or uh, you're not really concentrating because they're ready to say their next thing. Um, or uh, they don't really agree. With th- don't you just hate that? And I think the invitation is to listen. Not argue. Not debate. Listen. Listen. Let God speak again. Learn. Let God take even the simplest idea, love, and let him take us deeper and deeper and deeper in. Listen, learn, and then lead. Then enter into the conversation through the humility of listening and learning and leading. It's such a wonderful thing. Three kids, six grandkids, many more to come, we hope. The excitement of hearing Dada for the first time never goes away there is something about abba father that just never goes away now let's talk a little bit about the book of hebrews firstly the author we just don't know and so it's been a great speculation from the earliest of times in fact some of the earliest fathers said obviously it was paul in fact i think the king james version used to say it's an epistle of the apostle paul something to that effect but 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 the clever people have said the very carefully composed and studied Greek of Hebrews is not Paul's spontaneous, volatile, contextual Greek. So it's probably not Paul. And all of his other letters are clearly indicated as, as him being the author. It may have been Barnabas, some have argued. He was a gentle man, and uh, he certainly had tons of Greek. Or Salvanus, who wrote... On behalf of uh, some of the other fathers, some have even suggested Apollos, who we meet in Corinthians, or Clement. Now, the one that is most curious to me is A.J. Gordon suggests Priscilla. That's an interesting one, isn't it? He, he says, it is evident that the Holy Spirit made this woman, Priscilla, a teacher of teachers. In fact, later, Adolf von Harnack, uh, a German theologian, he wrote with great conviction that it actually would have been Priscilla, the authorship. He finds the most compelling. He says, uh, chapter 13 is written by a person of high standing, an apostolic teacher of equal rank, with Timothy. Donald Guthrie's great commentary on the letter of the Hebrews mentions Priscilla as the one he suspects as the author. Now, why am I so excited by this? Well, part of it is just my prophetic curiosity. Part of it is my my history, mystery researcher. But I think that there is still a wave of callings and giftings and ministries and life in the spirit that God wants to release upon his daughters. I I, I think that the women have been in many instances passive. The reformed theological camp has not helped the cause of women stepping into ever increasing places of influence. 80% of believers in India are women. 20% of the leaders of churches in India are women. Doesn't that sound a little higgledy-piggledy? One author said many female writers have adopted male nom de and other or otherwise gender ambiguous pseudonyms for a number of reasons. These reasons include to publish without prejudice in a male-dominated s- society, to experiment with freedom of anonymity, or to encourage male readership. They then list 12 women authors, including Louisa May Alcott, and J.R. Rowling welcome Hobbit uh, Harry Potter rather who have written under male pseudonyms and discuss their pertinent reasons for doing so today consider some of the greatest novelists of our time the literary sisters Charlotte Emily and Anne Bronte like many of their female contemporaries first published their works under male pseudonyms of Curro, Ellis and Acton Bell given reactions to their writings including Emily's Wuthering Heights, which was described as brutal and wicked. Their adoption of male aliases isn't surprising. Charlotte Bronte herself stated, We do not like to declare ourselves as women because, without at that time suspecting that our mode of writing and thinking was not what was called feminine, we have a vague impression that authoresses are liable to be looked on with prejudice. Isn't that amazing? So the literary part of me is interested in being Priscilla. The theological part of me is interested in it being Priscilla. The ecclesiological part of me is interested in being Priscilla. We just don't know, but I'll come back to that in a moment. Who's the audience? It seems like it's the diaspora. It seems like the Jewish Jesus lovers were being persecuted we know that from stephen stephen's death and we know that they scattered throughout the known kind of middle eastern into european uh, part of the globe and it's quite possible that this author out of deep love wanted to reach into that jewish jesus followership 32 old testament chapters or verses are used so we suspect There is a strong Jewish Jesus connection right there. Now, not only is the author interesting and the audience curious, but the atmosphere, the context into which it happened. What does persecution do? Have you ever thought of that? Well, generally speaking, when we look at the first disciples, generally people do this. One, they push hard into God. Look at John. John was there at the cross He was sitting with Jesus' mother. He stuck with him till the end. Um, The fear of death himself did not allay any sense of, I'm going to be there anyway. The second is almost remove uniform and mingle with crowd, as one storyteller said. It's those who kind of have a mediocre faith and become cultural conquests. They become so intimidated by the culture, (coughs) excuse me, that they just integrate themselves. That's what happened to Peter. He said, "This blankety blank Jesus. What are you talking about? I don't know him." There is a mediocrity and a surrender to the cultural norm. And then, of course, there's the third group, like Judas, who walk away with vulnerabilities and doubts. And 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 I find generally that those who walk away, you know, oh, I don't like formal church. I don't like this. Formal theology, they generally don't live a more righteous life with more love and generosity and kindness and mercy. There's loads of cynicism and skepticism and criticism. Now, COVID 19, dear friend, has been our persecution. Think about it for a moment. What did COVID do? It scattered the church, the church wasn't allowed to gather, it created individual isolation and separation. You know, many of you, many of us had to uh, isolate ourselves from the pandemic and from other people. It certainly created much doubt and vulnerability and many walking away from faith and community. um, In in fact, probably a lot of sinning went on. um, But there were those who pushed hard into the core. There were those who did not drift to mediocrity who did not step away from community but pushed hard into their faith and into their community. In fact, I think that uh, this verse in chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 really describes the central essence of the desire of the author. We We must pay the most careful attention, therefore... To what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through the angels was biding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Fire engine. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. God also testified to him by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. I think that verse 1, we must pay most careful attention so that or lest we drift away. That is the central cog that makes sense of everything else in this great book. Now, isn't it interesting, the author that doesn't say we must pay attention... Or we must pay careful attention. He says it three times. Well, let me explain it this way. I was a school teacher, and I remember it was a school of boys. I loved teaching a thousand boys, uh, kind of at the coast in in Durban, South Africa. And uh, certainly, the beautiful summer's day, Africa. You would see the surface sitting chatting to each other, looking at the wind, the wind is sifting, surfs up this afternoon, or whatever the case may be. And of course, I would say, come on guys, come on, let's focus in, let's pay attention here. It's not life-threatening, it's not um, a, a, a huge issue here, it's just, come on, let's focus a little bit. Well, the author doesn't offer that as the exclusive language. And then he says, we must pay careful attention. Well, that reminds me a little bit of our drill sergeant when uh, when I was in the army at boot camp. And the drill sergeant in South Africa, you don't kind of sweep your feet together when you come to attention. You pound it in. You get your half your leg up to your knee, right up to parallel, and then you smash it in. So it's quite compelling when you see a squad, a platoon, a company drilling together, and, <clears throat> and um, um, but but and then the sergeant would come up to you if you did it out of step with everyone else, and he would shout at you and cuss at you, and inside of you there is a rage, and why does he treat me like this? I'm a human being. Well, why does he treat me like this? Well, it became clear to me when we did fire and movement. Now, fire and movement is where you learn to run at the enemy. In other words, when the guns are blazing, when they're shooting at you, the way you deal with that is to go into a fire and movement. So, Every alternative rifleman runs forward 10 steps, falls down or kneels down or hides behind a bush and shoots. Then the next crew, second, fourth, sixth, come past then 10 steps and they shoot. And then the first crew do it again. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you need to know that the person either side of you is shooting absolutely straight, is running absolutely in line with the rest of their buddies. And when you go through, you are not in... Jeopardy. You are not living in the fear of your life because they are shooting within their lanes. So little things like drilling correctly was not just some sadomasochistic moment. It was so that we learn how to run our lanes, shoot our bullets, cover our target. All of that is what makes sense to me when the drill sergeant stands in front of me and says, you better pay careful attention. But the author... Says you must pay more careful attention. And when I think of that, I, I, I think of a story that happened many years ago. It was a Wednesday morning. I was sitting on my desk preparing for a leaders' meeting. Tion was about three years old. He was playing in his toy box on the patio just outside. There was a little rocking horse and little kind of cart, tricycle things. And he went off for his nap. I went off to an elders' meeting. And as the elders' meeting came to an end, late afternoon, I got a call from Errol's mum to say, Chris, I think you need to come home. Oh, I said, what's the issue? She said, there's a rattlesnake on the patio. I did what Jesus tells us to do. I grabbed one of the elders who'd been a missionary and a great snake killer, and off we dashed back home. All needless to say, my role was more the motivator, enthuser, and Jay did a fabulous job of dealing with a snake, um, Arguably, we could have done it differently. But what do you think Meryl did when Tian woke up from his sleep as we were clearing out the blood and so on? She walked up to him on her knees, she got put his face in her hands, and she said to him, T, what do you do when you see a snake? Oh, he said, I will scream and run away. She said, No, 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 T, don't do that. The movement will create the strike. Of the snake and she explained to him at length you stand still for a moment wait for the snake to calm down you walk back slowly and then she said you call for mommy do you get it yes he said now holding his face what do you do he said I scream and I run away but but you see there was a moment where my sister who worked at a game lodge in South Africa And she taught her kids the same, because obviously there are tons of snakes in South Africa. And she tells the story of coming out of one of the bungalows they cleaned for the new guests. And as she walked out the door, between her and her little daughter, who was three years old, was a cobra. And she spoke quietly. She said, say, you know what to do. Yes, mommy. Stand still. And the cobra watched looked with no movement it went down to ground and slithered away see this is a life and death conversation and i hear the the maternal heart coming through here and maybe i'm over reading into it of course but 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 i think it compels me that maybe it was priscilla who wrote this great and and i can see her cusping the face so to speak of these young believers who are under persecution who've been scattered and and she's writing to them with careful affection please she said we must pay most careful attention therefore to what we have heard to the full body that jesus gave us and all the teaching that the apostles gave us so that here comes the punchline we do not drift away oh my dear friends at a time like this when the church was already fragile and we were already wrestling with doubts and uncertainties and vulnerabilities and why the pandemic and young people we know who have died and all of those things happening, this is a time in which uh, we, we are vulnerable to falling away. And uh, I think that we need to pay most careful attention to that full body of truth, therefore, so that we do not Drift away. Now, what is the outline of this chapter? Well, there really are, I think, three things that help us understand this letter. The first is that it's a letter of comparison. R. C. Sproul speaks about Hebrews as a letter where Jesus is seen as better than. That's what Jesus is seen as better than. It's a book of comparisons. Now, what were the church people facing? Well, angels. And and I mean, think you and I have heard of people who would just make so much of the angels and we give them names and we give them titles and we create this pseudo-mysticism. And the writer says, no, 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 no. Jesus is better than the angels. And then he speaks about Moses, and uh, Moses is the traditionalist. You know, all of those who, who, who want the, the, the antiquitous, the, the, um, the things that we've passed on from generation to generation that prevent us stepping into the things that God has for us now. Or, or the priests and the, the liturgists, the, the, the liturgy of, of the order of things, the known, the predictable, um, the clearly shaped. He, he takes away from all of that. And then, lastly, the tabernacle. Jesus is better than the tabernacle. Those sacred places where we want to bow down to places and spaces and think the atmosphere is what it's all about or the envelope is what it's all about. No, Jesus is what it's all about. In fact, the the writer of Hebrews says right at the beginning, he says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by the power of his word. Or the ESV says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Nature. Now, Tim Mackey with the Bible Project illustrates that verse this way. He says, think, if you will, of the sun as the father and the rays that bleed from the sun th- being the sun. That is the picture. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. That's what comes out from the Son. But He's also the exact imprint of His nature. So often we, I think we overly confuse or try to understand the Father as if somehow the Father and the Son are different. They are different by, by persons, but they're an exact imprint. If you want to know the mercy of God, look at Jesus. In fact, Jesus said... If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the ring on the hot wax. I am the exact imprint of my heavenly Father. And so this letter is this glorious comparison between Jesus and all the other things that so dearly want to demand our attention, our worship, our focus. But the second thing is that it's a letter of community. Now we know right here it says, you are my son, today I've become your father. I will be his father and he will be my son. And then chapter 2, this salvation, which was announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God has testified to it by signs, wonders and miracles and by the Holy Spirit. So here's the Trinity, the first exquisite, perfect, harmonious, partnering community as a representation of what God is building down here with us as humans. Now, this is something I feel so passionate about. Isn't that interesting? Out of 13 chapters, the author uses led us 12 times. 12 times. That's almost one per chapter. It's so faulty in our Western world that my faith is so individualistic. That's not the faith of the book of Hebrews. That's not the faith of the early church. This hyper-individualistic, dream-driven, capitalistically orientated Christianity, folks, is just not Bible. You know, on Thursday nights, which is our home group night, Meryl normally has, between six to eight clients, an hour of invitation into the cyclone of people's lives. She has a staff meeting. So she normally stumbles out of her world at... Six o'clock. At six thirty, we have home group. You know, there are times I would love to just say, Oh babe, you were exhausted, you are fried. Why don't you stay at home? We'll have some steaks, we'll have a glass of wine, we will just detox. Oh no, no, she doesn't want that. It's let us because there's this understanding that we do life and faith in community. Community is what explains it. Normally, when we get home at 10 30, 11, we're excited, we buzzed, our weariness has been replaced by love, our anxieties have been replaced by exaltation, um, our kind of uh, uh, dreary souls have been lifted by laughter. And Chris Pierce and, and Brian Griffiths get going, and, and Chloe and the rest of the crew, and, and, and our, our souls are lifted because let us not forsake the gathering of the brethren as is the case of some, so that we do not drift away. Some of you have heard the story of my dear friend George, who was an elder with me at Southlands, big African-American, and I say that because of where I come from, South Africa, and the racist things, and how God sent me this incredible man and the deep love we had for each other. And George was a big footballer, and every time he we went on a trip, he would give Meryl and me a big hug and say, Don't worry about the kids, don't worry about the church, I got it. Well, you can imagine my surprise. He was 38 years old when I landed in South Africa to speak at a conference, and I got a message to call his wife no matter what the time. And I looked at my watch, it was 2 o'clock in the morning, LA time. So I said, Okay, I called her. She picked up the phone instantly and she said, Chris, George is dying. I said, no, 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 no. Hang on a second. Hang on a second. This this is is just not happening. What do you mean George is dying? Well, he's got a a rapidly growing leukemia. I mean, we left him healthy and well. This is two or three days later, and they're saying he's dying. I said, Priscilla, I contacted the friends in South Africa. I said, guys, um, you know, help me. Uh, They said, get back. So I got on a plane, long story, landed back Walked into the hospital and met the doctor and met her. And the doctor said, look, uh, he's been kept alive by machines. Um, I said, Doc, can you give us an hour? Now, see, this is the first part of the story where community was so powerful. Just a moment, the elders called the church and every person in the church was at the church building crying out to God. I walked in. Because I'd asked for an hour from the doctor and there were people on their knees, people on their faces, people walking up and down, people crying out to God, people speaking in tongues. The community was rallying around someone who needed them. This was their persecution. Death was their enemy. I got back, had a chat to the doctor and um, the decision was made to pull the plug. That night, Meryl and I had to sit with Priscilla and her four kids. The youngest was a baby in arms. And uh, I'll never forget, as they walked in uh, and they saw me, they just started shrieking because they knew I was supposed to be in South Africa and they knew something had happened as we had to tell them about their dad. Now, the second part of this community piece is I watched community rally. I watched every child cared for by a couple in the church just spontaneously would take them to soccer practices and go and watch their games in fact for years it may still be happening but for years one of the families in the church joined them for christmas brought gifts for the whole family ladies and gentlemen that is christian community that is christian community but on the first sunday after george's passing Priscilla was in bed groaning, moaning. Understandably, the full grief of his passing was on her. And her second daughter, who was about eight at the time, I think, came through and said, Mom, when are we going to church? And Priscilla said, I can't, Camille. I can't. I'm done. I I just don't have it to go to church. And um, uh, Camille said, but Mom, remember what Dad said. Kids, no matter what happens, run to the church. And mom, dad's gone. But he would want us to run to the church. I'll never forget standing up preaching, not expecting them there at all. Explaining to the congregation what had happened. And the door opened and Priscilla and the four kids walked in. And the place was just in tears. You see, it doesn't matter what happens. Run to the church. That is... What this author is communicating. It's a letter of community. It is one of our highest values. Please don't try to do this walk of faith on your own. Not only is it not biblical, you are way too vulnerable in trying to do that. Remember, no matter what happens, run to the church. And lastly, it's not just a letter of comparison, a letter of community, but it's also a letter of clarity. I won't spend much time in this, sufficient to say in this passage, this first chapter, it says there's the power of his word that laid foundations. Think about that for a moment. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word spoke and the word created the foundations, Genesis chapter 1, of the earth. And then secondly, there's the authority in his name that there's deliverance and salvation and healing. Oh... Dear friends, the freedom of seeing that gnarly person just um, torn up by demonic oppression come free as the name of Jesus is spoken over them. And healing and salvation. And then the purification of our sins. You know, there were two scriptures that had a dramatic impact upon me as a young believer. The first was from Isaiah. It says, though your sins are a scarlet, they shall be as white as freshly fallen snow. Oh, I needed to hear that. I was so aware of the sin that stained me, quite honestly. And, and I needed to know. What the, now, I, I, I had no understanding really of snow. I was in South Africa. We didn't have snow. And I remember the first time up at Lake Arrowhead, we woke up. And uh, it had snowed. First real snow we were in. And, and the four of us, T wasn't born yet. And we stepped out of the hotel room and got dressed warm. And we crunched our way through this. And then I, then I knew. Then I knew my soul was crunchy snow. Freshly fallen, crunchy snow because of the purification of my sins. And then I, Psalm uh, 103. God takes our sins and separates them from us as far as the east is from the west. It means, God, I am a sinner. It means that I have sinned and I do sin, but, oh, I need you to take them from me as far as the east is from the west so that the power of shame and guilt can be broken and the freedom of grace and mercy flood my soul. Yep, this is a book about the humility of listening, the eagerness of re-engaging with Jesus, and the readiness to let us, leaving behind our selfish ways and believing in the power of community and making it, it's true, our true highest value. God bless you all. See you at home groups. Enjoy the series as many within the community and outside of will come and teach us. Listen. Learn. Learn and then lead. God bless you all. Father, thank you for this great community. Thank you for our story of faith. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives. We are eagerly anticipating your word being spoken, our lives transformed, and our decisions influenced so that we do not drift away. In Jesus' name.